In the movie Talladega Nights, actor Will Ferrell plays a character called Ricky Bobby, and he is a redneck of rednecks. He calls his family together uh, to say grace over their meal, and here's the prayer. Here's how he opens up his prayer. He says, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. And about that time, his wife interrupts him. <laughs> she says, sweetheart, Jesus grew up. He didn't stay a baby. And Ricky Bobby responded this way. He said, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you're saying grace, you can pray to grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, bearded Jesus, or anyone you want. But he liked the baby Jesus. The baby Jesus isn't threatening. The eight-pound, swaddled in a diaper, baby Jesus is easy to manage. You can cuddle with that Jesus, but... The Jesus that the book of Revelations reveals of like a voice like thunder and eyes like lightning, which, by the way, with a tattoo of his own name that only he can read on his right thigh. That was the verse I used to tell my mom that it was okay for me to get a tattoo. She still said no. But there's versions of Jesus that make us uncomfortable. And that's what we're talking about in this series. Jesus revealing the parts of himself that may or may not have fit people's preconceived ideas of who he was supposed to be. Like in the first week of this series, the Jesus who pronounces doom and judgment on three cities filled with people and said, God is done with you. It'll be better for the cities of Tyre, Sidon, and, and Sodom than it will be on the day of judgment for you guys. That sounds, that, that's, that's strong right? Or the Jesus who said to the Jewish people that he was greater than the Sabbath, that he was greater than the law, that he was greater than Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, what do we do with the Jesus that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father unless they go through me. What about Muhammad? What about Buddha? What about the Jesus who says, I am greater than? Like, that's the Jesus that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Now, we're not the ones, the only ones, the first ones to struggle with who Jesus actually revealed himself to be. John the Baptist himself came to Jesus and said, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we look for somebody else? He wasn't sure because he was becoming uncomfortable with who Jesus was revealing himself to be. And the disciples, after Jesus calmed the storm, the Bible says this in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other, even the wind and waves obey him. Now, Jesus was aware that their expectations did not match his mission. So it's probably not a surprise to us that Jesus would begin to press the issue with his disciples first. I need you guys to wrestle with who you come to the conclusion that I am because I want to see if that's who I actually, like, let's bring up the hard truth here and see if we're on the same page. And Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Here's what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail that isn't important to the story. There's other things that Jesus said where it said uh, that Jesus walking along the road, said to his disciples. So why does it add Caesarea Philippi? What is it about Caesarea Philippi that God wants us to know 
And how does that connect to the story? The name of that town today is called Benias, and it's also the ancient name of the town. It's called Benias. When Herod became king, Herod is the builder king of Palestine, Judea, and he lived by the philosophy of it's better to make friends before you need them philosophy. So when he was given control by Rome of this part of the world, he renamed this city after Caesar, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Then he and then his son built a temple there to Caesar. It's called the Augustinium, uh, which was there. But what preexisted his building of a temple there to Caesar Augustus there in, in uh, Banias, which he renamed to Caesarea Philippi, uh, was that there was a temple to the Greek god Pan, the half-human, half-goat god. There's a cave built into the side of, it's not built in, it's already there, and there's a spring there. In, in fact, they haven't been able to find the bottom of the spring, at least in Jesus' day. Um, what's, what's the guy's name? Josephus, the uh, historian, the Jewish historian from the time of Christ, uh, said that they had tried to uh, drop a sinker into on, on a string to find how deep that well was, and they could never find it. They actually thought that this was the gate to hell. So the common phrase for this shrine to the god Pan was referred to as the gates of hell. That's what this was. This was the gates of hell. And people would, there's a uh, there's an ancient, you, I can, I'll show you a picture here of, of the area. The cave on the far left is where the spring is. To the right is where the grotto was. And to, then to the far right was where the Augustinium was built. And uh, here's a picture of what we think it looked like in Jesus's day. And what they would do is, is there was a stone uh, in the spring in the back and they would offer a human sacrifice there. They would slit. I don't I want to be careful just in case there's kids listening. They would cut them and have them bleed to death there on this altar. And then the family would go about 100 yards away and wait to see if that person's blood showed up downstream. And if the person's blood showed up downstream coming out of the rocks and they, they believed that that was the God Pan answering this prayer. It was, this was not a good place for those who are followers of God to hang out. But Jesus is standing in front of the temple to Pan, the temple to Caesar, the grotto, and the place where people offered living sacrifices. And it was with this backdrop, and by the way, Caesar is referred to as the son of the gods that Jesus said, who do people say the Son of Man is? So it's this comparison and contrasting of what other people think about God and what the disciples thought about God that Jesus is trying to make. They give their answers uh, in the very next verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. So now we're looking at how they responded to Jesus' question. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14. Well, they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets reincarnated. It's a weird answer for a Jewish person to give. Right, that there are people who think that you are the reincarnation of Elijah. Well, how he could also be John the Baptist because John the Baptist is his cousin, 
And Jesus is only six months younger than him. So that was a weird answer. And Jeremiah reincarnated or one of the other prophets. Like these are all very odd answers. But they're not the only ones to have formed an opinion on Jesus. Even like everybody has a strong opinion about who Jesus is. Mahatma Gandhi said that Jesus was a man who was completely innocent, who offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act, he said. Gandhi went on to say at a later date that after having read the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, he would have chosen to become a Christian if it weren't for the way that modern-day Christians behaved. That's sad. Albert Einstein said, I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. He later added, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with this kind of life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of the person that we see in Jesus. Mikhail Gorbachev said this about Jesus. He said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Now, please don't, don't come at me for that. That's Mikhail Gorbachev's opinion. Like I'm just saying everybody has very strong opinions about who Jesus is. And so Jesus asked the disciples, who do your friends, who have you heard other people say that I am? But I don't think Jesus is as interested in what other people think about who he is as he's interested in what you think about who he is. We see Jesus turning to that in the next verse. Verse 15, uh, then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? That's where he was going, right? So they're standing in front of this grotto, the temple to Pan, this temple to Caesar, the son, the son of the gods. And he says, what do people think about who I am? How do I connect to people's version of God? They throw out their answers and he says, all right, great. That was the introduction because my real question is this. Who do you say that I am? And I think that if you were going to hang out with Jesus, he might ask you a similar question. Who do your friends say that I am? What has your church taught you about who I am? What does your grandma think? What do your parents believe? What? But he's in asking all of those questions, Jesus is going to get to the real question that you and I have to answer, and that is, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. So Jesus responds to Peter's answer with an encouragement and a theological statement. The encouragement is, you're blessed to know this. The theological statement is, because God revealed this to you. Romans chapter 12 says, that faith is a gift that comes to us from God. And that's what God, Jesus had said to Peter. Peter, God's the one who revealed this to you. And you're blessed. Be, like, count yourself fortunate to have come to the understanding of who I am. 
Jesus said in another place that nobody comes to faith in him unless the Father draws him. So blessed are those that God draws and those who choose to follow. And if you want to follow Jesus, then God is drawing you. That's a great thing. And truthfully, as a follower of Jesus, my biggest prayer, honestly, the thing I pray most for, and the thing that's going to tear me up most often when I'm preaching is when I start talking about my actual friends who are still disconnected from God and all the number of New Englanders who are still disconnected from Jesus. So pray for God to continue drawing people to himself and giving them the kind of faith that they need in order to believe. And then in the rest of this passage of scripture, Jesus gives the disciples, and this is how we're ending our time, five awesome truths that change everything. The first awesome truth is this. You, and this, is, this could be terrifying or awesome, depending on your perspective, but you are responsible for what you believe about Jesus. Your grandmother's faith doesn't cover you. You being born into a Catholic family doesn't cover you. Being born into a Baptist family or a congregational or an Episcopal or like nobody is grandfathered into faith. Nobody gets this as a right of their bloodline. This isn't something you inherit from your mom or dad. So the question that each one of us honestly have to answer is, who am I going to say that Jesus is to me? And I am 100% responsible to God for how I answer that question. There's a verse that says that every knee on judgment day Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means Hitler will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only problem is that for him it will be too late. Jesus talked about this, and I mentioned this last week, that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, you work of sin. You were never mine. Now, everybody will one day acknowledge who he is. The question is, will we acknowledge it before it's too late or not? That's the first awesome truth, is that you are 100% responsible for what you personally choose to do with Jesus. At the very center of Christianity is this question, who is Jesus? I love what C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, Mere Christianity. This is on pages 54 to 56, where he kind of unpacks this idea. But I'm going to read Two paragraphs, so if you hang with me for just a second, here's what he said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say, because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. <laughs> Number two, you can become a part of what Jesus is building. 
Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says this. Now I say to you, this is to Peter, that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not be able to conquer it. Now this is where Jesus renames Peter from Simon, son of Jonas or son of John, to Peter. He'll often be called in the book of Acts, Simon Peter, but his given name is Simon. Jesus gives him the nickname Peter. Now the word that Jesus used, and by the way, and I will build, and on this rock I will build my church. From that statement, some of our friends believe that the Catholic Church was built on Peter. But Jesus spoke in Greek and he used two completely different words. He looked at Simon and he said, your name is Petros. Now Petros means a little stone. So that's the name that he gives Peter. You are the little stone. And then when he said, and on this rock, now in English, it's translated rock in both places. But when Jesus said it, he said, you are Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now the word that Jesus used for rock is, I said, Petra, that means a large mass of rock. So what Jesus said is, you are a little stone, and on this large mass of rock, I will build my church. So the question is, what is the large mass of rock? If Peter's the little rock, then what was the big rock that had just been declared? That is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, that's what I'll build my church on. By the way, this is the very first time that Jesus ever uses the word church. Now in English, we have the word church, which comes from an old uh, German word, kirch, K-I-R-C-H, which meant meeting house. But the word that we translate into the English word church from the Greek is actually a word that means the gathering, the ecclesia. So Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. A literal interpretation of this is, you are a little stone, and on this large mass of rock, I will build my gathering, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this massive stone is what he's going to build his church, his gathering. That large, massive stone is the declaration that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. But is that consistent? Is that how Peter understood what Jesus is saying? So I'm going to go to Peter's first letter to the church, churches, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, here's what Peter said about this. He said, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are all living stones, or all of us. He is the Petra, but each of us are the Petroses, like Peter was, a Petros. Around the Petra, around the cornerstone that God is building into his spiritual temple, what's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scripture says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So Peter understood that the church was built on and around Jesus. And as each one of us make a conscious choice to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, 
we then are brought into what God is building, this great temple with Jesus as the cornerstone, the example, the rubric around which all other stones are, are measured. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, together we, all of us who turn from sin and begin following Jesus, are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles even are also being a part, being made a part of this dwelling where God uh, lives by his spirit. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says again, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we have already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So who is the church built on? According to Peter and Paul, the church is built on Jesus. What is the church made of? It's not the creeds. I believe in the creeds. But the church is built on Jesus, and it's made of the saints, both past and present. It's every person who comes to the conclusion that Peter first acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one around whom our lives are to completely be revolved. And what did Jesus say about the church? This is the third truth. Jesus said, I will build the church. I will build the gathering. So the church is us, and Jesus is the one who builds it. In John chapter 6, it says this in verse 37. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those that he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. They started arguing over this, and in verse 44, Jesus says, For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. As it is written in the Scriptures, they will all be taught by God, and everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. So God is the one who is building the church. How? By drawing people to Himself. And those who come to Jesus, Jesus says, I will never, ever reject. Once you're adopted into the household of faith, once you turn from sins and place your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are brought into relationship with God, you and me, and all of our flaws, our imperfections, and all of our strengths and skills and heart and passion, all of this is brought together and then we become placed into this church, this gathering that God is building in the earth, through whom he will continue to give more people more opportunities to know and to follow Jesus. And now I'm getting ahead of myself because then Paul adds this thought in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. He says, Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? 
And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news to those who need it. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Jesus. That's how God is bringing the church, by allowing you and me to be messengers. And I love that he says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring that good news. I want to make some kind of a t-shirt that says, I got sexy feet or something. No, I don't want to say sexy feet. That would be inappropriate because that's a weird thing now. But I got good looking feet, something like that. Like, But how beautiful are the feet of those? Please get past the feet thing. But how beautiful are the feet of those? that bring good news. That's you and me, man. I want good looking feet. Like somebody needs to tweet that, right? Like Jesus wants your feet to be pretty. He wants your feet to be beautiful because you're the one who, and then Peter does this, isn't this cool? That Peter's the first one to make the declaration that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're the little rock, but on that large mass of rock is where I'm gonna build the church. And who gets to be the first person to tell everybody about that large mass of rock in Acts chapter two? Who's the first one to ever give a sermon to the masses after Jesus had ascended into heaven? Peter. He gets to be the first one to do this because he was the first one to acknowledge it. That is stinking awesome, right? And then Paul goes on to say later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21, that we then become ambassadors. We're working on behalf of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, to those who are outside of the kingdom of God, which is everyone that we love and care about who's disconnected from God. And we say, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could be made righteous in the sight of God. How beautiful are the feet of those who share that with other people. The fourth truth is this, that the gates of hell, that's kind of cool, that Jesus is standing in front of the gates of hell and he says the gates of hell will not be able to stop this. That hell cannot stop the mission of the gathering of those who are followers of Jesus, the church. And and for the last 2,000 years, uh, the Romans, for the next 300 years, tried to stamp it out until finally Constantine said, oh, if I can't beat him, I'm going to join him. And then he, quote unquote, converts to Christianity, but kept his sword out of the water so he could still destroy people, which kind of goes against what Jesus had preached about, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to love our enemies, right? Like the Crusades and all of that, that's actually anti-Jesus. That was done in the name of Christianity, but had nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. That had nothing to do with biblical Christianity at all. But throughout the centuries, Christianity has tried to be stamped out. And I like this story, and there's a lot of different stories I could have uh, shared, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to pick a couple. But one is uh, uh, Voltaire, who in 1764 wrote that the Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. He said, we are living in the twilight of Christianity, in a letter to Frederick the Great a king of Prussia. And he also wrote to him and said, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating the world of this infamous superstition, talking about Christianity. 
Voltaire ended every letter, you know, like you would say, with warm regards. He entered, he ended, excuse me, he ended every letter he ever wrote with this phrase. And I can't say it in French, so I'll just say it in English. Crush the infamy. And the infamy he was talking about was the Christian religion. It's rumored that he even said within 100 years of his death, there wouldn't be a single Bible around anywhere except in museums. He was so vocal against Christianity that the king of France kicked him out of the country and he went to Geneva, Switzerland. And there uh, he was harassed by the Calvinists and then he fled to a town called Fernie, France. And in an irony of history, his home in Geneva became a storehouse for the Geneva Bible Society and the printing press that he used in Fernie. This happened 58 years after his death, by the way, in only 58 years. Uh, the printing press that he used in Fernie, France, to promote his anti-Christian literature became a printing press for more, for more Bibles for all of Europe, uh, which I, I think God has a sense of humor. Uh, I love what Napoleon Bonaparte wrote. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in all of the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have all founded empires, but what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon the force of arms. But Jesus Christ founded an empire on love, and at this hour... Millions of men would gladly die for him. The mission of Jesus, built on the recognition of him as Messiah, will not stop until Jesus returns to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. And that brings me to the fifth awesome truth, and that's this, that the church has been given the keys. Us, the saints, those who've rearranged our lives around the mission of Jesus. We are the church. And we've been given the keys, the gospel, the message, the knowledge of who Jesus is. In Luke chapter 11, verse 15, Jesus refers to keys. And here's what he says. What sorrow awaits you experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people, and you don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. So those keys had been removed from the experts of religious law, and those keys of knowledge of the kingdom were given to who? Us. Those keys were taken and given to the gathering of the saints of the church. The church has the authority and responsibility to share what we know about who Jesus is. That the kingdom of God is available to anyone who will turn from sin and acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus built his church on this statement and then commissioned those who acknowledged it to act on that in his last conversation with him in Matthew chapter 28 and in Acts chapter 1. Matthew chapter 28 says this in verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. How do you become a disciple? By turning from sin and acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's the people creating the image of God, turning from sin to worship God and obeying the stuff that he told us to do. In Acts chapter 1, verse 
uh, 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set these dates and times. They're not for you to know. Then what is for us to know? Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You and I may want to know when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, to establish his permanent kingdom. We may, but that's, that's above our pay grade. Our job in the meantime is to make sure that everybody that we know, love, and care about gets an opportunity to know and follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So what do we do with a message like this? We ask ourselves a few transparent questions. The first question is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Second question. Have you obeyed the gospel and repented of your sin to follow Jesus? Yes or no? Third, if your life were to be the evidence that Jesus changes lives, what would those closest to you think about Jesus based on your life, based on the evidence that God transforms people's lives from the inside out? What would they say about Jesus based on what they see in, in me and in you? And then that's probably going to bring up a couple of things that need to change. Then that's what you need to do with this sermon. And what part are you playing to make sure that everyone everywhere gets a chance to know what Peter figured out first? That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer of mankind, the hero of the human heart, the son of the living God. Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful. I'm thankful, Jesus, uh, that you didn't Leave it vague that you forgave sins because only God can forgive sins, that you received worship because only God receives worship, that you revealed yourself to your disciples who then revealed it to their generation, who revealed it to the next generation, who made sure that our generation here on the whole other side of the world would still get the opportunity to repent of our sins, to acknowledge that we have broken the commands. We've broken all the commandments. We've been selfish towards our fellow man. We've even broken our own consciences. And when we stand before you, Jesus, on Judgment Day, and you ask, are we innocent or guilty of breaking your laws, we will have to say that we are guilty. Which is why, Jesus, we needed you so badly, because you're the only one who's ever lived without sin, earning innocence so that you could offer yourself as a sacrifice for those of us who are guilty. So I want to say thank you for doing that for me. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who has saved me from my sin, and I'm grateful. If you've never turned from sin and called on Jesus to forgive you and save you, then this is your opportunity. Jesus, I acknowledge that you never sinned so that you could offer yourself as a sacrifice for me because I have. Thank you for raising from the dead with new life to give me new life. Change me from the inside out. I'm calling on you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior so that I can be saved. God, show us if there's anything in our life that's inconsistent 
with a person's life who's lived in obedience to you. Forgive us for the way that we disobey you even now and still. Change our hearts so that we begin to hate our sin as much as you hate the sin. Help us to follow you, Jesus, not so that you will love us, but because you already do love us. And then close your prayer by praying for a friend who's disconnected from God. Ask God to give them the faith that they need to be saved. Ask God to begin drawing them to Jesus and ask God to make your feet beautiful. Let you be part of their story of faith. God, give us courage. Give us compassion. Help us to be more concerned about those that we love who are disconnected from you than we are concerned about what they will think if they find out we're followers of Jesus. Let your will be done in us and through us is our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we all say it together, amen.